I'm Luke. I'm John. Hello, good morning and welcome. Well, it's a podcast. They might be listening at any time of day. We're going to talk dodgy jumpers, talking animals and the famous five. We're not doing bloody Enid Blyton, are we? You're sillier than a war sausage. It's time for breakfast on Cracking TV. They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Cause now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado. They'll choose the shows that you want to view. It's time to change the channel too. Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John, and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode, we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win to avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This time I'm the Commissioner. Luke, thank you for coming in. I've asked you to pitch breakfast TV shows, so fill my slots with orange juice and coffee and get me up with a smile. So the story of UK breakfast TV starts on the 28th of March 1977. Okay. Trident Television, who operated the Yorkshire and Tyne Tees franchises, launched an experimental breakfast TV service. Right. Until then, there had been nothing at all on TV in the morning, except for Open University on the BBC. Yeah. Yorkshire TV got Good Morning Calendar, presented by Bob Warman. Good morning from Calendar on this historic day for us, bringing breakfast television to Britain. It's a pleasure to be with you, but uh, no pleasure, I'm afraid, to have to bring you these news headlines. <laughs> Quite cheesy. Presumably he had to go into something very morose immediately. No, it was a very morose story, yes. Right. Tyne Tees got Good Morning North. Yeah. We've talked about the Calendar brand before. I would have called it Good Morning Yorkshire, though. Yeah, well, they just love it, don't they? They had to call everything Calendar, Calendar yeah. Countdown. There was Art Show Calendar Carousel. They did a youth music show, Calendar Goes Pop, hosted by a young Richard Maidley. Why didn't you cover that in our music or youth episodes? Because it was shit. Oh. Both the breakfast shows lasted for one hour a day, 8.30 to 9.30. So, you know, most people, if they're going to work, they've already left by yes, that point. Yes, that's a bit of an issue, isn't it? It's a little bit late in the day. And only the first 15 minutes of that was original content. 15 minutes, they bothered getting out of bed to start doing that at 8.30am. Doesn't feel like great TV. No. They would have phone-in live traffic updates. Right. The morning news headlines, but only accompanied by still images. Right. A morning weather forecast, the meteorologist on the phone with no graphics. <laughs> and of course, a look at the morning papers. In the Sheffield Morning Telegraph, two photographs that highlight the perils of motoring. One of a car all but disappearing down a workman's hole. <laughs> Must have been a very big hole. Yes. So what did they do with the other 45 minutes? So the rest of it was reruns of kids shows and Peyton Place. Right. Both series ended after nine weeks on the 27th of May 1977. Okay. And they decided not to carry on with them. They decided not to carry on. But to prove that we're comprehensive in our coverage of UK television, yeah. we should mention Greenwich Cablevision. Oh, of course. The first community television station in Britain 
broadcast in the Greenwich area of London during the 1970s and early 1980s. Right. They launched Britain's first regular breakfast service, Greenwich AM, on the 1st of May 1981. Okay. And that lasted 90 minutes a day, so longer than the Yorkshire Time Tees efforts, and it was compiled by local volunteers and community groups. I bet it was fantastic. Well, judge for yourself. This is Greenwich AM, Britain's first breakfast programme. And on the programme today, we've got our national press review, a look at uh, the Good Food Guide for Greenwich. We've got the sports news coming up. Gary Morgan with the Rock Report, of course, and some guests from the Clockhouse Community Centre. In January 1980, the Independent Broadcasting Authority announced that in the next ITV franchising round, it would offer a national licence for breakfast television. Okay, so the IBA was the regulator of independent commercial TV at the time, and they would award the franchises. And up to that point, a franchise meant the ability to broadcast in your region, wasn't it? So there was Granada for the Northwest, there was Time Tees for the Northeast, etc. And now they were saying there was going to be a single franchise covering the whole of the UK to provide breakfast TV. Yeah. And they gave people four months to respond, and on the 28th of December 1980, they announced the result. Yep. There had been eight bids. One of them was ITN. Right. But ITN didn't win. It went to TVAM. Yes. They were going to be the breakfast television provider for ITV to begin transmission in 1983. Right. Now, this set off alarm bells or should I say alarm clocks, at the BBC. Right. They were determined not to be beaten to the punch, and so they launched their own breakfast show before TVAM, which I'm sure we all remember to this day. Yeah. In December 1980, BBC Scotland carried out a one-week experiment in breakfast TV, a (laughs) simulcast of BBC Radio Scotland's breakfast show, Good Morning Scotland. Right, and that's your first pitch, is it? Yes. No, 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 of course it's not really my first pitch. And neither is this, but it is just worth mentioning. In October 1982, as part of coverage of the Commonwealth Games, the BBC broadcast a two-hour daily programme called Breakfast with Brisbane, which included regular news summaries. Okay. But here is my first pitch. On the 17th of January 1983, a revolution in British TV began. This is BBC One. In a few moments, it'll be breakfast time. Breakfast Time originally came from the BBC's Lime Grove Studios in Shepherd's Bush, later moving to Television Centre. It was produced and edited by Ron Neal, who had produced Nationwide, a current affairs programme that had light entertainment elements, and That's Life, which had a similar tone. He'd also co-created Newsnight, which of course is a hard news and analysis programme. Yes. Breakfast Time was like a mashup of all three programmes. Okay. Literally, they would interview cabinet ministers and move them over to the kitchen to help with a cookery item. (laughs) Breakfast programmes are often a battleground between the news and entertainment departments of the major broadcasters. Yes. The original hosts were veteran BBC presenter Frank Boff, known for Grandstand and Nationwide, ITN News at 10 host Selena Scott, and BBC journalist Nick Ross. It's 6.30, Monday, January the 17th, 1983. You're watching the first edition of BBC Television's Breakfast Time, Britain's first ever regular early morning television programme. 
very good morning to you all. Now, from now on, five days a week, from 6.30 till 9, we hope to be present at your breakfast table to bring you the morning's news, weather, sport, traffic. But we also plan to put an awful lot more into our breakfast menu. Regular features, regional news, live reports from all over the country. Now, as you can see, our home is very, very relaxed and informal, and we really do think that that is the right setting from which to bring you interviews with people and personalities who are making the day's news. As Uncle Frank says there, it was all very informal. The mm. set was cosy, there were red leather sofas, everything was bright colours, there was tea and coffee on standby on every table, no desks apart from the newsreader. It was all very casual. Yeah, Frank Boff wore jumpers, didn't he, instead of a suit. You wouldn't see a suit and tie on any of the main hosts. Yeah. There was a clock permanently on screen. Yes. The first yeah. time we'd seen anything like this. Very fancy graphic. <laughs> so advanced. I remember as a child being quite amazed by it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so stupid now, <laughs> but it really was advanced at the time. Yeah. And actually, one of the most advanced bits of technology was the weather. And this was presented by Francis Wilson, who'd been poached from Thames Television. Yeah. And it used a modern projection-style graphic, all backed up by computer, while the main BBC weather bulletin still featured the old-style magnetic symbols. Yes, that's right, yeah. And they had one of the world's first newsroom computer systems, costing a cool half million. Wow, that's a lot of money. The national news was read out by Debbie Ricks. Yeah. David Icke had the sport. Mm -hmm. And each BBC One region opted out twice per hour for short regional news bulletins. Yeah. Now, as we've said, there were informal items. So, for example, Russell Grant did the horoscopes. Yes. Now, you're a Cancerian, John. I am a Cancerian, yes. And shall we see what your horoscope is today? Sure. Cancer, you'll be in a position to put your case without any frills to the people that matter. You should be diplomatic, but totally honest too. A suggestion from an admirer shouldn't be frowned upon. If you want a little passion put back into your life, that reminds me, I've got me banana. For some reason, that was being hosted from a fairground. <laughs> OK, well, I'm very excited about the banana passion. But I'll particularly take note that I'm supposed to be diplomatic but totally honest when it comes to summing up your pictures. <laughs> Diana Moran, known as the Green Goddess due to the colour of her leotard, attempted to get Britain fit with her exercise routines. Oh, yeah. Her first appearance was from Waterloo Station in the middle of rush hour with bemused commuters looking on. <laughs> Come on, Britain. Wake up. Shape up. And stretch up. Let's get Britain fit. And this morning here at Waterloo Station, I've got some marvellous uh, people who are going to help me keep fit. Take your shoes off. The gentlemen, under your coats. Make yourselves feel comfortable. Put your papers down and your pipes and your umbrellas. We might need those a little bit later on. Would you like to come forward towards me as well? And let's all of us get fit. <laughs> Put your pipes down. <laughs> How things change. Absolutely. So it all looked very friendly. But behind the scenes, there were issues. Scott later said that Boff would deliberately undermine her by interrupting mid-question. Yeah. When she attempted to complain, she said that senior management was simply not interested. They seemed to have no emotional intelligence, and they let men like Frank Boff roam the BBC without any check on them. And look, Frank Boff was uh, in many ways a, a troubled man, wasn't he, with quite a lot going on in his personal life? Yeah. Selena Scott saying that about Frank Boff should really have been raising alarm bells about the other men that were being allowed to prowl around the corridors of the BBC unchecked. Well, yes. 
and a few years later Boff would be sacked from the Beeb after the News of the World reported he had taken cocaine and worn lingerie at parties involving prostitutes. Didn't they offer them coffee to keep them awake in the mornings? <laughs> well, I think there was more than sugar in Frank's coffee. <laughs> Um, I remember a few years after that, Frank Boff was often the butt of jokes on Have I Got News For You, being delivered by Angus Deaton, which would turn out to be rather ironic. Yeah, Alanis Morissette would have a field day. (laughs) By 1986, Selena Scott, Nick Ross and Ron Neal had left, and BBC management decided breakfast time needed a relaunch. Right. Out went the sofas and jumpers, horoscopes and exercise, in came a big desk, suits and ties and more news than Peter O'Hanra Hanrahan would know what to do with. (laughs) Good morning, and a very warm welcome to BBC Breakfast Time. It's Monday, November the 10th, and today we start a new look, but I hope you'll find us as welcoming as ever. Sally Magnusson is here, and so too is our other Sally, uh, Sally Jones the Sport. And as you can see, we've got a splendid new desk here, from which we'll be giving you all the news of the day and comment on the important stories of the morning. And very smart, you look too in your jacket. You like it, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You might have got a new one for the occasion. (laughs) Frank clearly referencing the desk through gritted teeth there. (laughs) Yes. Other hard-nosed journos, including Jeremy Paxman, Kirsty Walk and John Stapleton, joined the programme. Yes. It's just as well the astrology went. You can't really imagine Jeremy Paxman throwing over to Russell Grant, can you? <laughs> no, in fact, when when they started having to do the weather on Newsnight, mm. he just had a fit, didn't he? So yeah, That was classic. Definitely can't imagine him doing the horoscopes on breakfast now. Come on, Russell, it's a load of bullshit. <laughs> and so, yeah, all the soft features went and in came detailed political analysis. Yes. Usually breakfast time was only on weekdays, but there were two occasions where special weekend editions were broadcast to provide coverage of the Zeebrugge ferry disaster and the Hillsborough football disaster. Yeah. In 1989, the inevitable happened and BBC Breakfast Time was rebranded BBC Breakfast News. Okay, so is that your second pitch? No, it's still part of my first pitch. But it's a different programme? I'm going to invoke the going live, live and kicking precedent and say they're effectively the same show and can be treated as a single pitch. Mm, okay, I think I can allow that. Breakfast News launched two weeks later than planned because of problems with the set. Right. It was a more conventional news programme than even the last few years of breakfast time. Yeah. The first edition was presented by Nicholas Witchell and Jill Dando. Yes. It was a rolling news format with news summaries every 15 minutes, plus weather and regional news every 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And there were a review of the day's newspapers and regular business news updates. Yeah. In 1993, it was revamped and it was presented from the same virtual set as the 1, 6 and 9 o'clock news. Right. And then in 1997, it was revamped again. They brought back the sofas, the softer features and the chat between presenters. Okay. In 1997, the BBC launched BBC News 24, its 24-hour news channel. Yeah. And they'd run a separate breakfast news programme on the channel, which was a bit weird, a bit wasteful. Yeah, yeah. And so in October 2000, the BBC merged the two separate shows into one, and they called it BBC Breakfast. And let me guess, this is still part of your first pitch. You're catching on. <laughs> At first, BBC Breakfast was hosted by Jeremy Bowen and Sophie Rayworth. Yeah. And this was actually the era when I was working in TV Centre, and I briefly worked on Breakfast back then. Oh, cool. But actually, it really found its identity with the pairing of Dermot Murnahan and Natasha Klaplinski from 2002. 
Yeah, I mean, for one thing, they were both stunningly attractive people, weren't they? It really felt like this was the flagship programme for the BBC. Yeah, and until that point, the BBC had oscillated between two different formats, hard news at a desk or a lighter approach on the sofa. Yeah. And this format split the difference. It was a proper news programme, and the presenters dress like news presenters, but they're sitting on a sofa, and they do have a laugh together when appropriate. Yes. Other notable presenters have included Michelle Hussein, Susanna Reid, Bill Turnbull, Louise Minchin, Sean Williams, Chris Hollins, Dan Walker, Charlie State, and Naga Machete. Yes, and Carol Kirkwood doing the weather, and Steph McGovern doing business. Yeah, absolutely. In July 2010, the BBC announced that Breakfast was moving to new studios in Salford Quays, and it completed that move in April 2012. Yeah, and there was some scepticism amongst the press, wasn't there, as to whether this was going to work. Mm. ITV's daytime stalwart, Richard Maidley, warned they might struggle to get guests to travel from London to Salford for a four-minute interview. Yeah. And obviously, he had been part of the team that had moved this morning from Liverpool to London, precisely because of that reason. Certainly, that was the stated reason for the move of that programme, yeah. But I, I don't think there's been any evidence, actually, over the ensuing years that there's been an issue with getting guests onto breakfast in Salford. No, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, they make use of interviews down the line for the, yes. for the political interviews. But even that hasn't really mattered. No, and it's had no impact on the viewing figures. I think they've just remained steady throughout, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. And that's despite being in a pokey little studio originally intended for local news. (laughs) In September 2019, Naga Machete was initially ruled to have breached the BBC's guidelines by criticising US President Donald Trump for perceived racism. Yes. She had taken issue with Trump's comments telling his opponents to go back to places from where they had come. Yeah, arsehole. And she said, every time I have been told, as a woman of colour, to go back to where I came from, that was embedded in racism. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of anything here, but you know what certain phrases mean. Yes. And then, of course, Tony Hall, the Director General, personally overturned the decision. Yes. I think the BBC made a rod for its own back, and I think the press conflated a couple of issues when they were covering this issue because on the one hand there was the question of did she breach the guidelines and yes technically she did question two was was she wrong or were the guidelines wrong and clearly what she said was perfectly acceptable it was the guidelines that were wrong and they, they didn't need to take any action against her totally in june 2023 bbc breakfast moved to an all new multi-purpose studio in media city in salford Uh which it shares with bbc sport right And the show's still going strong today. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, although it's been through multiple changes in its name and some changes in its format, it's been running now for 40 years and uh, doesn't show any signs of stopping. Absolutely. So that's your first pitch. What have you got next? So as I said earlier, TVAM had won the franchise to provide breakfast TV on ITV. Yeah. TVAM bought a former car showroom in Camden and renovated it to create the Breakfast Television Centre. Yes, what a crazy building. (laughs) Yes. It was designed by Sir Terry Farrell, and it came to be known as Egg Cup House because of the giant egg cups on the roof. Yes. Which are still there to this day. They are. TVAM launched on the 1st of February 1983, two weeks after BBC Breakfast Time. Hello, good morning and welcome to TVAM. New studios, a new news service and a new national network. The initial launch date had been set for June 1983 to avoid clashing with the 1982 launch of Channel 4. Yeah. 
Now, the IBA allowed TVAM to bring forward its launch in response to the launch of BBC Breakfast Time. Mm Mm-hmm. In retrospect, TVAM probably wished they had waited. Oh, really? ITV hadn't reached agreement with the Actors' Union Equity over royalties for advertising on Channel 4, and that's because at the time ITV sold Channel 4's advertising slots. Yeah. Or indeed for advertising during TVAM's hours. Right. Equity instructed its members to boycott TVAM, meaning it couldn't air any ads featuring Equity members, and therefore it couldn't generate much advertising revenue. Oh, sugar. So the first ad featured the marketing director of Walls flogging his sausage. <laughs> Morning, I'm Ian Melrose, I'm from Walls, and I'd like to welcome you to Walls Breakfast Television. It's my job to make sure there's plenty for everyone. We'll feature some big and tasty names, so make sure you tune in to Walls Sausages and Bacon. No other breakfast television tastes as good. The IBA had required that breakfast franchise bids be highbrow, and everyone assumed if the BBC launched a rival service, then it would also be highbrow. Yeah, I mean, you would assume that the BBC was going to come out with a full-on hard news format, and the fact that they came out with jumpers and red sofas must have been an absolute shock. An absolute shock, yes. The chief executive, Peter Jay, former UK ambassador to the US and future BBC economics editor, came up with the phrase mission to explain to describe TVAM's purpose. Yes, he was a very high-minded intellectual type, wasn't he? Yes, but unfortunately it turned out that the mission to explain was really the mission to bore. (laughs) Yes. And so yeah, when Breakfast Time launched, it was light and fun. And this was obviously going to be much more popular with the viewers. And TVAM didn't have time to change its format before launch. Right. One of my earliest memories, and I would have been about four and a half when these shows launched, I very distinctly remember having a conversation with my dad about which was better, breakfast time or TVAM. And here you are now, nothing's changed, still having the same conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> TVAM was spearheaded by the so-called Famous Five, heavyweight presenters who were also shareholders. Yeah. So we've already talked about David Frost, he was the ringleader. Yes. But do you know who the other four of the Famous Five were? Well, they were some of the biggest names on British TV at the time, weren't yeah. they? So there was Michael Parkinson. Yes, the chat show host, and of course, who we've commissioned on Cracking TV. Yes, Angela Rippon. Newsreader and Morecambe and Wise star. And Eurovision host, of course. Yes. Um, Anna Ford. She'd been on News at 10, colleague of Selena Scott's, ironically. Okay, and uh, I can't remember who the fifth one was. The fifth one was Robert Key, so he'd been a journalist on Panorama, for example. Right. And wasn't Esther Ranson originally supposed to be one of them as well? Yeah, she was part of the original lineup. Frosty had persuaded her to take part, but she pulled out because she'd had a child and wanted to remain loyal to That's Life. Okay. An amusing story. The contracts for the five presenters were sent to the wrong individuals. Oh, shit. Which meant they found out each other's salaries. Oh, dear. Angela Rippon was on 60000 a year but Anna Ford was on 75000 a year. Ouch. But this was blown out of the water when they found out that David Frost and Michael Parkinson were being paid a lot more, and both of the men only had to do six months a year. Oh, dear. Sadly, that's something that's only recently started to change, is male presenters being paid a lot more than their female colleagues. Yeah. Well, look, this is all very interesting, but you can't pitch TVAM because it was a company, it was a particular license, it was a franchise, it was maybe a programming strand even, but I'm going to have to invoke the DEF2 precedent and say TVAM wasn't a program and therefore is not eligible to be pitched. 
you're right. TVAM is not a program. Mm-hmm. It's its own company. It is its own TV channel that happens to share space with the ITV regional TV channels. Yeah. So look, TVAM produced several different programs, including the Wide Awake Hub for Kids at the weekend, Whack-A-Day during the school holidays. But I'm going to pitch its flagship show, Good Morning Britain. Right. So the opening titles to Good Morning Britain, featuring a theme by Jeff Wayne, yeah. were iconic. Yeah. So we saw two skydivers holding up a sign saying good. Yeah. Then hundreds of pigeons in Trafalgar Square eating seed arranged to spell morning. Yeah, and you're just standing in the middle of them going, oh! Yes. (laughs) Then the crew of HMS Hermes holding up batons to say Britain. Yes. And finally, 6,000 volunteers on the Bristol Downs spelling out the words good morning Britain. Yeah, and look, I was a child, school child. I used to get up in the morning, used to see those every single day. They are burnt into my memory. Likewise. But isn't it funny how the shows we're going to see went through a number of different iterations, and yet they literally used the same titles on the first show and the last show. Ten years. Good Morning Britain, as it finished, could not be more different from Good Morning Britain when it began. No. And yeah, the fact that they kept the same theme tune and the same titles is amazing. Although probably just testament to the fact that they spent a hell of a lot of money on it and money was not always easy to come by for TVAM. Well, quite. So yeah, when Good Morning Britain started, it was a high-minded news and current affairs programme. Yeah. And initially it was hosted by David Frost and Anna Ford. Yes. The weather was presented or rather barked, by retired naval commander David Philpot. We're going to bring order to the weather today, David. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> that is very different from what we would later come to expect from breakfast TV weather hosts. It is, yes. The initial ratings were very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Compared to BBC Breakfast Time, it was very boring. Yeah. But also, there wasn't much chemistry between Frost and Ford. No. Frost had talked about there being sexual chemistry between all of the hosts. It just wasn't there. I mean, there's probably more sexual chemistry between Frost and Parkinson. (laughs) Yes. It was just cold. Yeah. And various combinations of the famous five were tried out every few weeks. But the ratings were never satisfactory. Yeah. And this led to a boardroom coup just six weeks after the station went on air. Yeah. Under pressure from shareholders, Peter Jay stepped aside allowing Jonathan Aitken, a sitting Conservative MP, to become chief executive. And that is wild that a sitting Conservative MP was allowed to be chief executive of a national TV network, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. I mean, it would be like members of the current ruling party being allowed to present news programmes. <laughs> Shouldn't be allowed. Good point. Uh, Officials at the IBA, plus opposition political parties, and actually a lot of Tory MPs, were unhappy at this. They just said it was inappropriate. The IBA approved Aitken's appointment on the condition that he'd be in the role for a limited period only, and they would keep an extra close eye on all the political impartiality of TVAM's programmes during this period. Right. Basically, I don't think the IBA had much other choice. Yeah. They couldn't just allow it to collapse a few weeks into being launched. No, it, it would be terribly embarrassing. Didn't Angela Rippon and Anna Ford come out publicly to support Peter Jay and, and say that there yes. was treachery going on behind the scenes, but unfortunately they, they hadn't realised that Jay had already resigned? Yeah, they said that there was treachery technically breaking their contract. Yes. Unfortunately for them, they needlessly defended him, as it Ouch. turned out. 
Now, the 1st of April 1983, which happened to be a Good Friday, would prove to be the reason that John Logie Baird invented TV some 60 years earlier. <laughs> Meet our new presenter called Roland Rat, would you believe? Yeah, what we'll do to stem the ratings. <laughs> Hello, good morning and welcome. <laughs> Michael Parkinson sounds thrilled to be sharing this screen with a rat there, doesn't he? Parky sounds absolutely <laughs> pissed off. This is the living legend Roland Rat superstar making his first TV appearance. Roland was assisted by David Claridge <laughs> and was commissioned by TAM children's editor Anne Wood to entertain younger viewers during the Easter holidays. Right. Anne is one of the most important people in UK kids' TV. Among many other things, she would later create the Teletubbies. Yes. Meanwhile, straight after Easter, sports presenter Nick Owen was promoted to be one of the main presenters. Right. He worked with Anna Ford for one week and then with Angela Rippon the next week. Yeah. Although Rippon clearly didn't rate him and was blatantly hostile to him. And didn't she say to him in one of the commercial breaks, it's not as easy as it looks or something particularly mean? Yes, and on another occasion, she suggested he swap places with Roland Rat. <laughs> And then on the 14th of April, Jonathan Aitken did the decent thing and finally stepped aside for a clearly impartial new chief executive. Oh, yes. It was his cousin, Timothy Aitken. <laughs> and within a week, he sacked Ripon and Ford because they'd supported Peter J. Right. And he did later say that it was because the company was losing so much money and because they technically breached their contract in supporting Jay, they'd made it easy he had to a reason them. to do it. He yeah. had, yes, and it wasn't actually anything personal. Although Angela Rippon was only on 60k, so that wasn't as big a saving. Well, exactly. Later on, Anna Ford ran into Jonathan Aitken at a party in Chelsea and famously threw a glass of wine in his face. I feel so sorry for him. Yes. Rippon and Ford issued writs against TVAM, but they settled out of court. Right. The sacking of Rippon and Ford upset Michael Parkinson and he held lengthy talks with Timothy Aitken about how unhappy he was. Yeah. And going into those talks, he said that he thought it would be over. But coming out of those talks, he ended up a director of the company with a seat on the board of management. Yes. And members of staff who had clashed with Parky were sacked. I don't think Parky covered himself in glory at that time, but in retrospect, he has said that he regrets it, that he took the shilling, that he was frankly on the verge of a nervous breakdown at that time, and so he made decisions that he thinks were bad. But yeah, not his finest hour. Not his finest hour, no. TVAM urgently needed new executive talent. Hmm. LWT was home to a very successful regional magazine show, The Six O'Clock Show. Right. It mixed the light-hearted and informative and was hosted by Michael Aspel, Danny Baker and Janet Street Porter. Right. And it kind of had a swagger to it. And I think it's fair to say it had an influence on Network 7 that we talked about last time. Janet Street Porter's gig, yes. Yes. But what matters to our story today is that it was edited by a chap called Greg Dyke. Aha. Uh -huh. Dyke was tempted across to TVAM to become editor-in-chief. Right. And then in June 1983, Anne Diamond joined from BBC Nationwide to become Nick Owen's new co-presenter, and a whole new era of Good Morning Britain began. So this era, with Greg Dyke in charge of the programming, Nick Owen and Anne Diamond presenting, Roland Rat around, that's some of my earliest memories of TV. And you were talking about the conversation that you had with your dad. I remember my dad saying, this is absolute trash. I can't <laughs> believe anybody would be sitting in the gallery producing this and not feeling ashamed of themselves. It's like the sun on TV. 
Whereas I have to admit, I loved it. I found it incredibly watchable. I mean, I was only a kid, but, you know, I, I found it warm, friendly, inviting. I felt part of the TBAM family over those years. Greg did a lot to, to bring in popular people. Yeah. And Greg was very happy to take TBAM in a populist direction. Yeah. And viewers loved the on-screen chemistry between Anne and Nick, and yeah. they wondered if they were secretly in love. Yes. They weren't, though. No. By the end of their first week, they had doubled their ratings. Yes. To 200,000. <laughs> Greg was very happy to do what it took. For example, he got Anne and Nick to read out the bingo numbers from the newspapers. Yes, that was a bit humiliating for them, yes. I think. During the summer of 1983... Breakfast Time hosts Frank Boff and Selena Scott took holiday. Yeah. And this was actually a, a rare misstep from the BBC because they thought, oh, well, people won't watch as much over the summer. But yeah. Of course, the opposite was kind of true yeah. because the kids tuned in and yeah. then the parents tuned in as well. Yeah. So the first thing Greg did was he sent Chris Tarrant to broadcast live from seaside locations. Yes. And it was super tacky. Yes, and Chris Chris Tarrant being a bit sexist and a bit sort of um, patronising to people with foreign accents and stuff. Like, the whole yes. thing was um, a very old-fashioned sort of entertainment that doesn't hold up very well now. It was the right side of acceptable for 1983. Yes. But perhaps not for today. I mean, it was literally end-of-peer entertainment. Yeah. Want to see the elderly conservative mayor of Blackpool in full regalia dancing to a modern pop tune alongside a bloke dressed as a gorilla? I think I actually do. Well, Tarrant has you sorted. <laughs> but the most important thing Greg did was expand the role of Roland Rat's superstar. Roland went on a tour of the country in Rat on the Road, driving his 1953 Ford Anglia, christened the Ratmobile, which his assistant Kevin the Gerbil had sprayed pink. <laughs> Roland's other assistant was Errol the Hamster, who worked in the videotape department, playing in the cartoons that featured on the show, leading to Roland's catchphrase, Errol, run VT! <laughs> Each week, Roland and Kevin visited a different city, Cardiff, London, Edinburgh, Oxford, Newcastle and York. Yes, and Roland would give out rat bags of goodies to the rat fans he met. Yes. I distinctly remember them camping in Trafalgar Square and the camping stove blowing up. Can you believe this? An international superstar reduced to having his morning wash in a fountain. This is all Kevin's fault, of course. I told him I wanted to stay in the best hotel in London. Uh, but the Hilton's too expensive. Bacon and eggs are off this morning, Roland. Right, that settles it. I'm off to the Hilton for breakfast. Taxi! Roland, what shall I do? Come and pick me up when you've sorted that mess out. Hilton Hotel, please. <laughs> well, let's talk about Roland Rat and let's talk about Greg Dyke in that order. Mm. Okay. So, Roland Rat, I mean, obviously, you are one of his biggest rat fans in the world. Indeed. But I also really enjoyed Roland Rat. I had his, uh, one of his records, I had his autobiography, which, you know, I haven't read that since I was a kid, but parts of it still stick in my head to this yes. day. Like how his, uh, was it his dad who was one of the rats that would uh, turn yes. the revolving stage at the London Palladium? Yeah, it's one of the 30 rats. That was Freddie, his dad. <laughs> right. And there was another bit in there about how Elvis had only briefly been yes. in the UK when he was on um, army duty and there was a brief stopover and he, he was in a, an airfield and he dropped a cigarette and, and this cigarette was like this um, important totem that people wanted to get hold of. 
for me as a kid, I just really enjoyed all that pop culture light entertainment stuff that was just bubbling through it. And yeah. I know some people find the Roland Rat character a bit obnoxious or a bit too loud or whatever, but th- there's there's a lot of subtlety and intelligence to, to that whole character and his backstory. There really is. And actually, I, I, I'm really proud of the four and a half year old me for um, liking Roland. I think there is a lot of depth to the act and and it's genuinely subversive. I mean, we heard that first clip when he, he started. What were the first words he said? Hello, good morning and welcome. Yeah, Aping taking the piss out of David Frost. Yeah, yeah. This was after the point that it was clear TVAM wasn't working and yeah. Roland started by taking the piss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it just continued and he would take the piss out of people that didn't get the act. But then those that did, you know, Anne and Nick got it. And yeah. he'd always refer to Nick as Nicholas, but they would laugh along, and it and it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. A memorable moment was when Roland berated newsreader Gordon Honeycomb, or Gordon Beeswax, <laughs> as Roland called him, for being boring, and he got Gord to liven it up by inserting a few years. <laughs> so Roland is one of the two saviors of TVAM, and the other one is Greg Dyke. And yeah. I mean, we both worked at the BBC when Greg Dyke was director general. Yeah. Neither of us were in uh, particularly elevated roles, so it's not like we were hanging out with him daily. But you could feel the atmosphere around the BBC was ambitious, creative, mm. optimistic. And there had been and have been so many true BBC men, and it is always men, at the top of that organisation. But it's funny that it took a proper commercial TV guy like Greg Dyke to come in and really understand what made the the workers tick and really get us all enthused about working at the BBC and feel proud and excited to be there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we'll have to talk about this in depth some other time. Yeah. But I think isn't it interesting that the previous director general was John Bird, who Greg had worked with at LWT clashed with the LWT and Bert had done some restructuring the BBC which actually a lot of it was necessary but he did it in a way that alienated the staff and Greg came in and he basically reversed some of the excesses of Bert and became popular with the staff. Yeah, and the reason I mention it is because the TVAM, certainly the TVAM presenters would say the same thing. Like yes. Anne and Nick have both said we would have died for Greg Dyke. Absolutely. So he, do, he really did have that way of um, infusing people and building loyalty and making a team feel like a team. He was a proper leader. Yeah. But anyway, back to Roland. Yes. The audience spiked whenever he was on. Right. And over that summer, he helped take Good Morning Britain from an audience of about 100,000 to nearly 2 million. That is incredible. I mean, it is incredible. And, you know, people say that he was the saviour of TVAM. Obviously, Roland himself isn't backwards about coming forwards in pointing that out. No, and he's called the only rat to join a sinking ship. Famously. And, of course, parents would then stick around for other parts of the show. Greg had brought in all these other people and they were key in the next phase. So while Roland gets most of the credit, there are of course loads of other people who were ready when the school holidays were over and that kept the parents watching. Yes, so Wincy Willis did the weather. Wincy had been on Tyne Tees and she'd been spotted as a rising star so they pulled her down to London. And then one day she sort of let slip that she had something like 80 different pets and so that became a new feature. (laughs) Right. Mad Lizzie doing the exercises. Yeah, Mad Lizzie, a.k.a. Lizzie Webb. She was Greg's PA's exercise instructor. Oh, okay. On the show, she'd rope in the guests. One of Take That's first appearances was working out with Lizzie. God, you forget how long they've been around. Yeah, but see if you can work out who she's with in this clip. We're going to swing the arms up, down, circle them round, up, down. Slowly does it. How are you doing, Geoffrey? 
I'm still, how are you doing? Oh, I'm managing quite well. Jeffrey. Yeah. I don't know. Is it Jeffrey Howe? No, that's convicted criminal, liar, and author of shite books, oh. Jeffrey Archer. Wow, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, he, he he seems like exactly the sort of person that would have been hanging around TVAM in those days. And no doubt mates with Jonathan Aitken. Yes. Jeremy Beadle had a slot called Days of the Day. Oh, I don't remember that one so well. This arguably misfired a bit when, when you think that they were trying to go for a chummy, happy atmosphere. He would tell you about the history on that day, often featuring who got murdered that day. <laughs> there was a cookery slot, which would yes. eventually be hosted by Rusty Lee. I remember her very well. Yes. I thought she was brilliant, incredibly funny, um, real personality. Such an infectious laugh. Yeah. <laughs> But they did then have a couple of odd choices Yes In terms of what they did So Paul Gambaccini did movie reviews Yeah, when you would expect him to be doing the charts Yes And Jimmy Greaves did TV reviews And this is the weirdest bit Because look, it's no surprise right? I'm still here now working in TV I'm doing cracking TV with you Spent my whole life watching TV And I spent my time watching TV AM and Good Morning Britain And the thing I was most interested in Was the TV review slot Yeah. So to me, Jimmy Greaves was this bloke off the TV Who knew about the TV Then on a Saturday you'd see him with Ian St John Doing St Greaves And be like, oh, he seems to know a thing or two about football as well took me years to realise that he was, you know, a fantastic striker, one of England's greatest ever players. I had no idea that he was a former footballer. I know. Why was he doing the TV review slot? I have no idea. Well, I think the story goes that he was originally hired to do some sports presenting. Makes sense, right? Yeah. But then they changed the format a bit, and Greg didn't need a separate sports presenter. But he really liked Jimmy Greaves, and he wanted to keep him around. So he said to Jimmy, well, what do you like? Do you have any <laughs> hobbies? And Greavesy said, well, I watch TV. (laughs) So Greg was like, yeah, great, come in, talk about TV. (laughs) Fair enough. So they turned around the show in terms of the audience. They now had viewers. However, money remained critical. Mm Mm-hmm. They hadn't got over all the launch expenses. They still had difficulty selling the ads. And they were so strapped for cash that one day a London electricity official turned up while the show was live on air (laughs) with a warrant to cut off their power for non-payment. That is wild. Yeah. The presenters often didn't receive their salary on time. Yeah. The local news agent stopped supplying them with newspapers because they weren't paying for them. Oh, God. And then they probably couldn't do the bingo numbers anymore. (laughs) You know, at one point, Greg tells the story that he was so worried that if they were going to go bankrupt and he wasn't going to get the payout, and he was looking around, working out, what what are the assets in this company? And the only asset he could think of was the barge that was parked out the back (laughs) on Regent's Canal. And he said, well, I nick the keys so that should we go bankrupt, I would just jump in the barge and sail (laughs) off into the sunset. Take that as his payoff, amazing. Then September 1983, TVAM finally reached agreement with the other ITV franchises, which meant they could cross-promote their programmes. Right, that must have helped. Which helped. The viewership started to increase a bit more, obviously based off of what Roland had done. But that ad revenue remained stubbornly low, and it really did look as though the company was about to collapse. Yeah. In November 1983, some new shareholders came in, including Ladbrooks and the owners of the Daily Express. And that gave TVAM a £4.5 million cash boost. Right. 
And then in February 1984, TVAM announced that it would be cutting over 40 jobs and mm-hmm. Parky quit. Right. He'd been presenting at weekends, although by this time, David Frost had taken over the Sunday slot while Parky was abroad and had increased his audience. So Parky had been cut down to just Saturdays. Right, so maybe Parky was quitting because of that rather than in protest at the 40 jobs going. But I guess we'll never know for sure. And of course, that slot that Frost took on Sunday... Frost on Sunday, yeah. Yeah, you know, and he took that to the BBC when TVAM lost its franchise. Yeah. And basically, Frost had the biggest political interview show, first on TVAM, then at the BBC, for more than 20 years. Yes, and that has evolved, hasn't it, via Andrew Marr and into Laura Kunzberg, so it's basically still part of British TV now. Yeah. Meanwhile, Australian business tycoon Kerry Packer took a substantial interest in the company in 1984, and then in May he appointed his own chief executive, Bruce Gingell. Who was the first person ever seen on Australian TV. Good evening, and welcome to television. Bruce thought TVAM should present an eternal summer. He was obsessed by the colour pink and loved cosmic ordering. Right, like Noel Edmonds. Yes. He initially worked alongside Greg and said to Greg, oh, we're going to have a great time working together. Greg quit within three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, Greg just needs to be in sole charge of things, doesn't he? He's not someone who can really report to another big personality. Yeah, exactly. Greg moved to TVS and then back to LWT, and then, of course, Director General at the BBC. Yes. And then Michael Hollingsworth became the new programme controller. He'd worked on BBC Breakfast Time since launch, but jumped ship. Right. Budgets were still tight, and this was most obvious during TVAM's coverage of the IRA Brighton Hotel bomb during the Conservative Party conference in October 1984. Yeah, now this is really famous, isn't it? They just didn't have any crew on the ground to cover this live. No crew at all. They had had a crew covering the conference. Yeah. But Ginger was like, the last day of the conference, nothing happens. Just bring them home, we'll save the money. But that bomb happened overnight into yes. the last day. The BBC, they had their sort of full political team there. And yeah. so early into breakfast time, they could show extensive coverage. And all TVAM could do was John Stapleton with a stock photo of him on the telephone and a caption on screen. And what could be more visual than a huge grand hotel that's been blown in half? And, you know, the prime minister had been in the hotel and Norman Tebbett had been injured in it. It's the biggest story and also an incredibly visual story. For a television station to only be able to cover that with a still photograph of the reporter who's talking to them over the telephone has got to be incredibly embarrassing. A reporter who was watching the BBC to get facts. (laughs) Wow. And John Stapleton found it so embarrassing that he left after a few weeks and would later appear on BBC Breakfast Time. Right. They realised that the only local ITV company that had OB trucks in Brighton was TVS, because obviously Brighton is TVS territory. Yeah. And so in the middle of the night, Mike Hollingsworth had to ring up the director of programmes at TVS, one Greg Dyke, (laughs) and ask him could they use the trucks. And Greg was a bit pissed at being woken up. He was like, oh, go on then. But they couldn't in the end, because it turned out they were inside the police cordon. Right. ITN had a crew on site, but they wouldn't share footage with TVAM because the two companies were in dispute. ITN remained pissed that they hadn't been given the breakfast franchise. Then when TVAM did win it, they weren't given a news contract by TVAM. All TVAM had with ITN was a pay-per-use access on the terms normally offered to foreign broadcasters. (laughs) God, on that night, everywhere TVAM looked for help, they just found old enemies, didn't they? (laughs) 
So in the end, ITN did give them a tiny bit of coverage that sort of just gave them a few pictures by the end of the show. Right. How did the regulator feel about it all? Well, unsurprisingly, the IBA was absolutely furious and told the company to invest and improve its coverage or it would lose its franchise. Right. Gingell played it back at the IBA, though, because he said, if you're going to take my franchise away in three months, take it away now. I'm losing money every day. You need to give me longer to turn this round. Right. So he sort of blackmailed them saying either give me a decent length of time or we won't go on air tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Caught their bluff. By 1986, Good Morning Britain had become the most popular breakfast show in the UK. And, you know, we've already talked about how the BBC changed breakfast time. What you would have expected the order should be became the actual order. The BBC was doing hard news. ITV was doing the fluffiest stuff on the sofa. Yes. And the audience prefer the latter. Yeah. Roland Ratt had defected to the BBC, although not to breakfast time, but rather to the light entertainment department. Didn't his programme refer to him being on BBC Three? It did. Well ahead of his time. (laughs) Yes, I think it was the second use of BBC Three, because of course there was a satire programme in the 60s called BBC Three. Right. By Roland's own uh, admission, he was on 10% of the licence fee, as well as having his own channel. (laughs) (laughs) On TVAM, he was replaced as the main kids presenter by Timmy Mallet. Right, yeah. Nick Owen left in 1986 to join ITV Sport, and he was replaced by Mike Morris. Mm Mm-hmm. Russell Grant moved over to TVAM after the BBC had gone for the news angle. Right. Later on, Lorraine Kelly would replace Anne Diamond and Ulrika Johnson would host the weather. Yes. Speaking of the weather, October 1987 was the big storm down here in the southeast, which I remember very clearly. Yeah. Power was lost to TVAM studios and an emergency programme had to be transmitted from Thames Television's Euston Road facilities. Yes, and um, the BBC couldn't use their usual studios either, could they? No. So then they have Nicholas Witchell doing breakfast time from the broom cupboard where children's BBC usually came from. Yes, they had to hastily take down some of the pictures. (laughs) Bruce Gingell was determined to make use of technical developments in television in order to reduce staff and save money. Yes. Similar to what Rupert Murdoch had done with newspapers. Yes, these Australian media tycoons and their cost-cutting ways. Yes, and this brought Gingell into conflict with the broadcasting trade unions. Of course. But of course, Margaret Thatcher loved it. Naturally. And so on the 23rd of November 1987, TVAM technicians went on a 24-hour strike. Yeah. Gingell responded by locking them out. Yes. And so for the next few weeks, they used non-technical staff to broadcast a skeleton service, including episodes of American series Flipper, Batman and Happy Days. I would have been nine at this time. And I remember this era really, really well. I remember watching Batman every morning and just being like, this is incredible that there's all these extra kids yes. programs on every day. Um, and before I went into school, we'd go into school and we'd play Batman on the schoolyard. Yeah. We got told off for fighting because it was all Biff, pal, you know, all all that, like 1960s Batman fighting stuff. Yeah. I remember it incredibly well, and I thought it was the best thing that had ever happened to TV. What an amazing transformation. Yeah. So obviously I didn't realise at the time that Batman was being a scab. Yes, but Adam West wasn't. Oh, right, the actor. The actor who played Batman. He was invited to appear on the programme, but he refused to cross the picket line. Oh, well done, Adam West. I must admit, without having a proper understanding of what was going on behind the scenes, as a child, I really enjoyed that era of TVAM. But it was very ramshackle, wasn't it? It wasn't Gingell himself directing. It really was ramshackle, and you're right, Gingell did direct. 
From the 7th of December, they brought back Good Morning Britain. Gingell directed, and he had directed before as a job, but he had very quickly realised it wasn't for him and moved into management. Right, yeah. He had secretaries running the cameras. <laughs> right. He had the sales director manning the VT machine. <laughs> and in one famous incident, he played an episode of Flipper Backwards, which made it look like he had drowned the dolphin. <laughs> It was all completely shambolic. Yes. But it received good ratings because people <laughs> like it when things go wrong. Mm. Eventually, Gingell fired all 234 of the locked-out technicians Ouch. and replaced them with non-unionised labour from around the world. Yeah, hooray. Yeah. And even if they had been arguably a bit overstaffed at one point, the cuts were much too deep and the output never recovered. And of course, that doesn't answer the moral question either. No. But it did help the bottom line, and by the early 1990s, TVAM was the UK's most profitable TV station. Yeah, and if that was the end of the story, it would be really miserable, wouldn't it? Because it's like they did all these horrible things, they cut costs, they made the programme worse, and yet they made a load of cash out of it. So this sort of cruel, soulless, ultra-capitalism actually succeeded. Except... Yes. Their mates in government accidentally screwed them over. Yes. So in 1990, there were changes in broadcasting law, meaning that commercial television franchises were no longer allocated on merit or potential, but rather through a blind auction. Yes. Thatcher had previously referred to ITV companies as the last bastions of restrictive practices, Mm -hmm. and she really wanted to transform ITV. This auction system fundamentally changed TV. Mm -hmm. The IBA was replaced by a light-touch regulator, the Independent Television Commission, the ITC. And TVAM, like all the other ITV companies, was required to reapply for its licence. The basic idea was that the licence would go to the highest bidder. There was a so-called quality threshold, a minimum threshold, but once you'd met that, it just went to the highest bidder. Yes. There were three bidders for the Breakfast franchise, Daybreak bid 33.2 million, Sunrise Television bid 34.6 million, Uh but TVAM only bid 14.3 million. Oh. All three companies passed the quality threshold, which meant it went to Sunrise Television, later renamed GMTV. TVAM had lost. Any idea who was presenting the BBC Six O'Clock News the day the results were announced? It was Anna Ford, wasn't it? It was. Good evening. The headlines at six o'clock. The Independent Television Commission announces the biggest shake-up in ITV's history. Four companies, Thames, TVAM, TVS and TSW, lose their franchises. (laughs) She does a good job of not sounding too smug. No, although I think she did have a slightly bigger smile than normal (laughs) when she was welcoming viewers to the show. Understandably, TVAM staff were unimpressed. Here are Mike Morris and David Frost with their reactions. We did not deserve this. We deserved special consideration for our achievements. That has not happened, and I feel gutted. I remember that when I was at school, I was always told that uh, the important thing is not the winning, but it's the taking part. I didn't believe it then, and I don't believe it now. I mean, they must have been very surprised because you would have thought that when Thatcher was overseeing this new system, she would have seen TBAM as the very model of what she wanted ITV franchises to be. And yet they lost out. Absolutely. The next day, Bruce Gingell read out a letter. Dear Bruce, when I see how some of the other licenses have been awarded, 
I am mystified that you did not receive yours and heartbroken. You of all people have done so much for the whole of television. There seems no attention to that. I am only too painfully aware that I was responsible for the legislation. Your sincerely, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> but Sunrise Television, any guess who is in charge of the consortium? Uh, no, I don't know. Greg Dyke. Oh, really? So Greg, at this time an LWT executive. Yeah. He realised that TVAM was financially screwed. There was no way they were going to be able to bid a huge amount of money. It made no sense to be a standalone company with facilities that were only in use for three and a half hours a day. Right. And so, yeah, Greg realised there was a massive opportunity here. He also relished going in and bidding against his former company. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And that middle bid that didn't win was led by one Mike Hollingsworth, <laughs> who thought exactly the same thing. I fell out with Gingell. I'm going to go and screw him over. <laughs> TVAM's enemies just keep coming out of the woodwork in this story, don't they? Absolutely. And as a final aside, TVAM, just before it was announced that they'd lost their franchise, introduced a brand new weekend show called TV Mayhem. Yes! And I love this show. It really lived up to its name, TV Mayhem. Yeah. It feels like cult viewing now because there were only six episodes. Yes. And it was produced and presented by a chap called Chris Evans. That's right. And when it was announced that TVAM had lost their franchise, his show was cancelled. Although Evans and his business partner got them to pay out a huge sum later. Right. So Evans' breakfast TV career wasn't quite ready, but I think we might be hearing from him again. No doubt. In TVAM's closing moments, the staff gathered around the sofa for the final goodbye. We'd like to thank everybody who's uh, been watching TVM. We've enjoyed your company. Yeah. But from TVM, sadly, we now have to say it finally. Thank you and goodbye. As Jeff Lynne's Good Morning Britain theme was heard for the last time, the picture switched to black and white with the caption, TVAM, 1st of February 1983 to the 31st of December 1992. I remember it. And then Egg Cup House was sold to MTV Europe. Yeah. So it's now the base of MTV's owners Paramount, which makes it the home of Channel 5. Absolutely. And the TVAM name and logo and its registered trademarks are all owned by journalist Ian White. And he's now the host of Yorkshire TV's calendar, which of course is where this all started. Oh, how funny. I love how these stories come round on themselves. Okay, so you've done your pitches for Good Morning Britain and for the BBC's breakfast shows, but revisiting that conversation that you had with your dad all those years ago, which one do you prefer? I think that's a really difficult question, and it depends when you're talking about, right? Yeah. So for the first few weeks of Breakfast Time versus TVAM, TVAM was an absolute mess. Yes. Good Morning Britain was boring. <laughs> yes. But then the revolution happened on the 1st <laughs> of April, with Roland coming in. Yeah. And of course, Good Morning Britain developed into a really relaxed, informal, all-family show. Yeah. And I think between 1984 and 1986, you could say the shows were kind of equal. I mean, of course, for me, Good Morning Britain had the edge because of the rat. Yeah, I loved The Rat, and I used to enjoy watching Anne and Nick and Gambo and Greavesy and Wincy Willis and later Ulrika. And I loved Mad Lizzie and Rusty Lee and Gordon Honeycomb. Mm, all good people. Yeah, and I'm a big admirer of Greg Dyke, so I think in assessing Good Morning Britain, we just have to generously leave aside the disastrous Famous Five era. Yeah, I think that's right. 
And then, of course, from 1986, Breakfast Time became serious. Yeah, I mean, for decades now, those programmes have been news programmes. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. They do it professionally and well. Absolutely. And they've got presenters who can set the right tone for a morning programme because they've got personality and chemistry as well as being able to switch very quickly to those very serious news matters. Yeah. But overall, you're going to say you prefer Good Morning Britain. I think that's right, yes. Well, that's very interesting to me, Luke, because you have pitched two shows so far. Yeah. And looking at the clock, I mean, I'm a little bit concerned about your ability to stick to time as a breakfast TV producer (laughs) because you've taken a very long time. The TVAM story is fascinating. (laughs) It it is fascinating, but I think we're going to have to split this breakfast TV, cracking TV episode out over two episodes. Okay. So I am going to give you the opportunity to pitch your other two shows next time. Excellent. Of course, I'm also going to tell you the show that I've already got in mind. But at this point, I'm going to take an early decision and rule out one of the shows you've pitched. What? We've never done that before. Everything changes. So for the BBC, as we discussed, for the vast majority of its time, it's been a news programme. Yeah. And news alone at breakfast just doesn't excite me enough. Fair enough. Good Morning Britain in the Anne and Nick and Roland Rat and Greg Dyke going onwards era was the breakfast TV that I grew up on. Yep. There's still a lot that I want to say about it, in particular how I feel about their business practices, but maybe that won't affect my judgment about what goes on screen. So I'm going to say, for now, TVAM's Good Morning Britain is still very much in the running, but I will not be commissioning the BBC's breakfast shows. Okay. So you're taking Good Morning Britain through, you've got another two pitches, but you don't yet know what I've already got in mind. I'm going to reveal that in the next episode of Cracking TV. But do you want to guess what it is? Actually, no. Don't phone. It's just for fun. Wait, what? No, you're not doing that. Well, you'll have to wait and see. You can't. Well, with language like that, you're not going to get the commission. So that was part one of Breakfast TV on Cracking TV. It was produced and presented by me, John Furlong, and the man who's looking very nervous alongside me, Luke Sluman. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHog Factual Entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. So until next time, take care, I love you all, and remember, Roland Rat rules, okay? Yeah!